Well, it's great to be here this morning. Uh, Lakeshore is, is a sister church to Spring, and, and we've had so many close friends that have gone to church here over the years and served on staff here over the years that it's always nice to be at a sister congregation. I remember the first Taze worship service or Taze worship service that I ever attended was here uh, on a Wednesday night years ago, probably 20 years ago when I was a seminary student here in Waco. Remember, we were huddled up in the room, and Mike Shiretti, if y'all remember Mike and Rachel Shiretti, uh, Mike was a, a close friend from seminary, and, and he invited me uh, to experience the, the, the whole uh, Taze chant and, and worship service, and it was a really beautiful experience. And, and so I, I've loved, what, I loved who you are as a congregation. I've also loved your advocacy. You've always been one of the fiercest congregations fighting for justice in this community, and I hope that that never changes. I hope that some of our other congregations, like my own, can catch up. Uh, that, that, that would be my only desire. Well, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, I, 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 I joked with, the, uh, with Sunday school, uh, the Sunday school class this morning that, you know, Wesley uh, had Wesley's quadrilateral, which was a real strong foundation uh, for mes- uh, Methodist uh, ministers to be able to understand how to engage the world. And I joke with our team that we just have Jeremy's three, wobbly three-legged stool, and, uh, and our <laughs> and, and so when we're, trying to, when we're trying to understand these big social issues like hunger and poverty or human trafficking or any type of world suffering, I think you have to take these three things into consideration. First, I think that you have to have proximity to the problem. Uh, so oftentimes we make up our decisions about what a person is experiencing or we make a snap judgment maybe based upon what we uh, experience in a, in a grocery line. And so we think about a lot of the pervasive stories about people who are hungry or how they use their federal benefits based upon what they put in their grocery basket that day. That is certainly not proximity to the problem. When I say proximity to the problem, I mean incarnational witness. Just like Jesus lived and dwelt among us, I think we have to live and dwell among those whom we are wanting to serve when it comes to these big social issues like hunger and poverty. So proximity is key to understanding. The second thing is research. Now, this may be uh, uh, my, my influence from the Baylor faculty community at, at, um, and the faculty that work with us uh, with the new collaborative, but really understanding what works and what doesn't work so that our solutions to solving problems like hunger and poverty do good instead of doing so much harm. And then the third thing is understanding our faith tradition. If you want Uh, to follow Jesus (laughs) and you don't want to work for justice, it's just incompatible. Uh, You can't get away from Christian tradition or Christian history. Uh, You can't get away from Christian scripture and really uh, not understand that we are all compelled to doing something about hunger and poverty as a part of our faith commitment. Well, a few years ago, I had the opportunity uh, to work as a congressional appointee or maybe it wasn't an opportunity, it depends on how you look at it, but uh, um, uh, to serve on the National Commission on Hunger. And so this was a 10-member bipartisan commission that was formed by Congress. Congress had never done a full-scale evaluation of all the anti-hunger programs and anti-poverty programs created during the War on Poverty during the LBJ administration. So now it had almost been 50 years, and Congress decided we needed to see what's working and what's not working. So they created this congressional commission. There were 10 of us five appointed by Republicans and five appointed by Democrats. For most of the first year, we spent time in the Beltway and we just argued with each other. 
If you had an R by your name, then everything that somebody that had a D by their name said, you disagreed with, even if it was, you know, do we have any water in the room? And, uh, uh, and, then, the vice, and then vice versa certainly happened. We, we determined that if we were going to make consensus recommendations back to the president, back to Congress, and back to the United States Department of Ag, that we were going to have to leave the Beltway. We were going to have to get out of town. So we determined that we were going to visit uh, communities all across the country uh, for the better part of the next year or two where we would go and we would sit down with individuals who are experiencing hunger. We would sit down with communities that were doing something about it. And then we would hold these public hearings where we would invite anybody that wanted to have their voice heard to be able to testify before the committee. And one of those trips took us to the American Southwest. We were in tribal communities and, and in New Mexico and Arizona. And, and then that trip ultimately ended in El Paso. When we got to El Paso, uh, we, were in, we were ushered into a room with a group of elderly members from the El Paso community that had met each other in a citizenship class they were taking. Their one wish was to die as U.S. citizens. Now, they hadn't been rapists or drug smugglers like the news had, had, had uh, certainly suggested. Instead, they'd been car mechanics. They'd owned their own businesses. They'd been laborers. They'd been farmers growing food for people like us. Uh, and they'd been custodians in hotels. But what they all experienced together is that none of their jobs uh, provided retirement benefits. So here they were at the end of their lives. They'd lived almost their entire lives in the U.S. And they were wanting, but they wanted to die as U.S. citizens. That was their one goal. Most of them had children that were serving in the U.S. military and were in the Middle East on active duty as we were speaking. And so towards the end of our conversation, I asked them pointedly, because we knew that they were uh, experiencing high rates of poverty, we asked them pointedly, do you have any food to eat? Well, everybody began to look away. No one wanted to make eye contact with me because they were afraid that I was going to call on them. And one elderly woman straightened her dress. She looked at me as her husband put his head on his cane and began to weep. And she said, occasionally we're able to eat. When we are... I'll make us a plate of beans and a couple of tortillas. That's normally all we get for a couple of days, but we're older now, so we don't need as much. After she said that, her husband raised his head and wiped his tears, and he looked at me in the eyes, and he said, remember us when you come into your kingdom. In this very room, Mike taught us the song, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The Tazay chant that, we see, that you sing over and over and over. As many times I've sung that song since or read those words, I've never imagined myself living in a kingdom. But he was right. He and his wife and the rest of the elderly in that community were going to go back to their homes of isolation that many elderly in our nation experience, to a home with very little food. I was going to leave and return to our nice hotel, have a nice meal, and then we would fly back to Washington to the halls of power to deliver our report. Remember us when you come into your kingdom. That next day, we were ushered into the same community center, only this time it was for a public hearing. In the public hearing, we had hundreds of people gathered into the room. The room was people were just shoulder to shoulder so that they could have their voice heard on this particular issue. 
we had invited a group of experts to provide testimony and then that would be followed with the public part of the hearing. This time they'd ushered us on top of a stage and as we were seated, seated on top of the stage, we were peering down at those who were coming to testify before us and they would walk, walk up the lonely aisle and sit at the small table down below our stage where they would look up at us and provide testimony. It was almost intended to be intimidating. Well, one professor from Texas A&M came, a, a, a man named Joe Sharkey, a public health professor whose job it is to research what's happening in the colonias on the Texas-Mexico border. And he came to tell us some of the things that he had recently experienced and learned from one of his public health workers. If you haven't been to the colonias, you might not uh, comprehend the living conditions that people live with in these communities. Now, the land is not owned by, the land, uh, by one of the residents. It's typically owned by a landowner who can come and take the property anytime that they want. So the people, when they come and they, and they, and they lease this land, they, they, they really try to put together a home uh, with whatever they can find. So it's not uncommon to see uh, a home with one wall made of, of corrugated metal and another wall made of plywood and another wall made of rocks from the surrounding land. Uh, it's very uh, unusual for a lot of our colonias to have running water or electricity, much less paved roads. So the conditions are very difficult, and that's on this side of the border. Well, he had a public health worker, a woman named Linda, and Linda was going door to door in a colonia where she lived. And she went and, and, and spent some time with a woman named Maria who invited her into the home. Well, Maria and, and Linda made small talk for a while, and then, and then Linda's job was to ask her a survey of questions. And the final question was one similar to the one I'd asked the day before. She said, Maria, do you have any food to eat? And Maria guided Linda into her kitchen. She opened up her refrigerator door, and Linda saw inside the refrigerator door that there was just a little bag of chicken bones. Puzzled, Linda asked Maria, she said, why do you just have a bag of chicken bones in your fridge? And Maria said, this way when my kids get home from school and they open up the refrigerator door, they'll at least see that something's there. I just kept thinking, surely we can do better than this. We are the wealthiest nation in the history of humanity. We have kids going without food, coming home to a refrigerator with a bag of chicken bones in the fridge. What we found as a commission was that the main causes of hunger were not laziness. The main causes of hunger were underemployment, meaning that people are working, they just don't have, they're not making enough money to make ends meet. If you make $7.25 an hour, which is the federal minimum wage rate, and you're able to put together 40 hours a week, which is unusual, if you do that, you typically have to put that together with a, several employers. That's only $13,000 a year. Well, even in Waco, where, where housing costs are not that expensive, $13,000 a year barely pays for rent, much less childcare expenses, a car payment, food, or health care. The second reason that people experienced hunger in our nation was directly tied to educational attainment. Now, many of you are educators, and you know that when uh, there was a study that was done at Baylor just as I was arriving, uh, and, and they found that when kids sleep uh, in stressful households, and the way they define a stressful household is that when kids don't have consistent access to food, um, or they don't, ha they don't sleep in a consistent place, 
in those first thousand days, those first few years on, on the planet, that it affects their ability to think in patterns. They can't fathom that two always follows one or that B always follows A. So by the time they get to elementary school, not only can they not read or write, they can't learn the alphabet or learn to count. Now we certainly know that these children grow up and oftentimes don't finish school, which leads to the cyclical causes of hunger and poverty continuing. Third issue was race. Here we are in 2019. 2019. Almost 150 years since we abolished slavery, 400 years since we instituted it, and you're still twice as likely to experience hunger in our nation if you're a person of color. Mental health decline was another one. This was one that a lot of us didn't expect, but you can imagine how many uh, individuals are living in isolated situations where they might have early stages of dementia, or they might be experiencing high rates of depression, all of which uh, begin to cause uh, ex increase experiences with hunger. What was consistent for everybody is that they were forced to make trade-offs. They were forced to decide each month if they don't make enough money to make ends meet, are they gonna pay for food? Are they gonna pay for their car payment, their light bill, or rent? If you don't pay rent, you get kicked out of your home. If you don't pay your car payment, your car's repossessed. But if you don't buy food, certainly it increases shame and guilt and causes mental health decline and, and reduces productivity but you can at least get by to the next month. And so people make trade-offs to get by. That was consistent. But most of us, as Christians, are familiar with the G of Jesus' teachings that I read earlier. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you visited me. This is the only apocalyptic or eschatological scene in the entire Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus was painting the picture of a very different type of kingdom. Jesus the King has returned, and this time he is sitting on the podium looking down upon the final hearing. He begins to gather everyone. They're all gathered before him, and he begins to separate the sheep and the goats, the righteous from the accused. To the astonishment of the people gathered, the criterion for judgment was not confession of faith in Christ. Nothing was said of grace, justification, or the forgiveness of sins. What mattered is whether or not a person had acted with love and cared for the needy. These acts weren't just extra credit, but constituted the decisive criterion for judgment. Essentially, when people responded or failed to respond to human need, they were in fact responding or failing to respond to Christ. The calling of the faithful is clear. Feed the hungry and you will live. But regretfully, in the U.S., we have over 40 million Americans that are living in poverty. 13 million are children. 4.5 million are senior adults. 41 million Americans are food insecure meaning that they don't have enough food to live an active, healthy lifestyle. And every county in the U.S. has reported food insecurity as a, among a percentage of its population. We've scapegoated the poor to justify not living up to our calling. We've had to scapegoat and push the poor out of our minds. We've had to dehumanize them. We've had to work hard to classify the poor as lazy, to divide them as deserving and undeserving. 
We've developed theologies of prosperity to lift those who are rich in order to demonize those who are poor. Thus, it becomes morally defensible for some children to have an abundance of food while others have a bag of chicken bones in the fridge. We can just blame their parent for being lazy or an illegal. But surely we can do better than this. At these difficult times throughout human history, it's also where we oftentimes see the greatest calls of hope anywhere, where we see people that are committing their lives to creating a new narrative about hunger and poverty and justice. One of these people that I met along the way was a young man named Jesus. Jesus was committing his life to the cause of people living in, uh, near El Paso in, in colonias across the Texas-Mexico border. He was a nutrition director, just a simple job with a small school district in Anthony, Texas. Jesus knew that his kids, when they got out of school, were going to be missing meals. Jesus, during the school year, did everything that he could to make sure that kids could get food by changing the location of where they got breakfast, the servant in the classroom, to making sure that they got after-school meals. He was doing everything that he could. But their area that, he saw, that, 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 that Anthony covered was so rural that they didn't know how they could possibly feed kids during the summer months. So he reached out to one of our, our colleagues who works with us or worked with us at the time named Ruben Sanchez in our El Paso office. He told Ruben his problem. So Ruben called us and, we, and then we in turn called a bunch of professors. We said, hey, we've got, a, we've got a logistical problem that I think you can help us solve. And so the faculty went with us to El Paso, to Anthony, uh, to this Anthony School District, where we met with Jesus and the students and the parents in the community. What we found out is that many of the bus routes oftentimes might take uh, 30 or even 45 minutes to go pick up one family, and so they weren't sure how they were going to possibly get food to kids that summer. What Jesus then determined with our faculty is that, hey, you know what? What if we what if we hire high school students? and give them jobs to be able to make meals for kids throughout the summer. One, that gets them employed and that brings in extra income for their families. It also means that students, when they see the high school kids out there serving the meals, are gonna think, hey, this is, this is cool, we can go to this summer meal site. And so they did that. So then they decided that they would get one bus and they got one bus driver and through route optimization, because you had some brilliant statisticians and folks in the room, they realized that if uh, they created a route where they could serve meals to kids and, uh, all across this far West Texas region. And so they would put the kids in pairs. The kids would come in early in the morning to the school cafeteria and they would make meals and they would be put in pairs and they would be given a cooler of food. And then they, that, those kids would sit in pairs on the bus and the bus driver would drop each pair off at a summer meal site all across that area. It took about two hours to drop everybody off and then they, the kids would be able to serve meals for that two-hour period. And then the bus would eventually make it back to pick everybody up and take them back to the school. With a little bit of planning, and by committing his life to the cause, Jesus served 4,000 meals to kids in Anthony every day. Every day. I joke with my dad, who's a Baptist minister, that Jesus fed the 5,000 once, but Jesus fed the 4,000 every day. So I don't know who, I don't know who won, but, uh, <laughs> but it's in these times when we're more polarized than ever before that we always see these individuals who are committing their life to the cause of justice in their communities. 
I am a student, was a student of history, and I love looking back throughout human history to see who else are those inspirations. William Wilberforce is somebody that I've been reading a lot about lately. Wilberforce uh, was the British parliamentarian during the 1700s that's largely credited for ending the British slave trade. He built a coalition of the willing made up of a whole host of, of people, and he committed his entire life to the cause of ending that, uh, that issue, and he accomplished that goal three days before he died. Three days. He literally gave his life to the cause. But one of his biographers noted that that actually wasn't the biggest accomplishment of his life. He said the biggest accomplishment of his life was ending the very idea that slavery was an acceptable form of commerce. Because until that point throughout all human history, slavery was just a way that you generated wealth. It was a normal part of the economic condition. The biographer noted that, that this accomplishment was as great as recognizing the world was round and not flat. It was historically altering. We still feel the reverberations today because of that ending the idea that slavery was an acceptable form of commerce. Well, likewise, I believe that we too are going to be judged by justice as we judged Wilberforce's generation, as we judged generations before us. We too, it's going to become imperative for us to end the very idea that hunger and poverty are acceptable social conditions. We've built economics and we've built economic systems, we've created neighborhoods, we've segregated schools, we've done all of this because we believe that poverty is okay, but we as people of faith know otherwise. Our job is to end the idea that hunger and poverty are acceptable social conditions. Every generation is judged by justice, whether we like it or not. When I see images of those African-American protesters in downtown Kelly Ingram Park in Birmingham and those Birmingham police officers during the civil rights movement turning their fire hoses on those young children. I know that I probably had family members during that time that were on uh, the side of those Birmingham police officers. That's a sin that my family must carry with us and repent from. But I also know a story was told of my grandfather a few years ago at his funeral that he and my grandmother and, and father were on their way home from church one Wednesday evening when he was pastoring in southern Arkansas. And on their way home, they saw a burning cross in the, on the, in the front yard of a home of an African-American family they knew well in the community. When they got up to the house, my grandfather pulled his car over and he sent my father inside to check on the family. When my father got inside, the lights were off, the parents were away at work, and the children were scared to death huddled in the back corner of the house. They didn't know if they were going to live or die. My grandfather then went over to the cross and he put the flames of the cross out. And then he walked to the edge of the yard and he began to peer into the woods across the street because he knew the Klansmen were watching everything go down. He yelled, cowards, cowards come out. How can you use this symbol of love as a symbol of hate? Whether we like it or not, that generation was judged based upon whether or not they further the cause of civil rights. And whether we like it or not, we are going to be judged based upon whether or not we further Jesus' command to feed the hungry. 
After all, our economic hardships are not evenly spread out among society. Rather, it's the same family that experiences bouts of hunger that also doesn't have affordable health care. It's the same family sending their kids to schools with graduation rates below 50% and college readiness in the single digits. It's the same family that have lacked livable wage paying jobs for generations. They are our scapegoats and they have been sent to live in deserted urban neighborhoods and rural trailer parks that we avoid. But this practice is antithetical to the scripture that we read in Matthew. After all, the accused in Matthew are the ones that did not see the hungry and give them food. The ones that did not provide shelter for the stranger or clothing for the naked. Instead, Matthew calls us not only to see the hungry as humans, but to see the hungry as Jesus. So together, we repent for our collective scapegoating, our indifference, and our lack of trust in God. And together, we remember our brothers and sisters who live in poverty as strangers in our kingdoms. And together, we will put flesh on the words of Jesus, for I was hungry, and he gave me food. Amen.